0: Hey, welcome to TMD on the Record. I'm your host Dave Klish. I'm here with my fellow hosts Jeff Timmons and Mike Grant. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. I just want to mention for our listeners that the last episode we did uh, was recorded in a pretty swanky professional studio. Um, But of course, with the current lockdown, we're doing today's session remotely. Uh, We apologize in advance for any quality issues, little hiccups uh, as our internet or our Wi-Fi cuts in and out. We have been discussing or planning this discussion for a little while, so we wanted to dive into it sooner rather than later um, so that we can take advantage of our most excellent guests that we have on today's show. Uh, Today's episode, we're discussing the not for profit space, um, how the donor acquisition model has changed over the years. Uh, We'll also be having a chat about um, some of the things that organizations should be thinking about to recover what has been lost over 2020. And certainly as we go into 2021 and what they can continue to do to recover so that they can continue this important work. Um, It's pretty timely, given everything that's happened. And um, we're really hopeful that some of the the great discussion we know is to come is going to be beneficial, not just informative for anyone else that's listening in the space who's experiencing some of the same challenges. Today, today, On the line, we are joined by um, a colleague, I'm proud to say also a friend, uh, Anya Clock. Anya is a fundraising and development expert who's worked in all over the place, but education, healthcare, youth mentorship, culture industries for over 25 years. Anya is a Canadian, uh, political science degree from Carleton University in Ottawa. Over the course of her career, Anya has introduced new revenue streams and developed fundraising activities that have resulted in tens of millions of dollars worth of donations uh, for -for not-for-profit organizations in the Los Angeles and surrounding area, focused very heavily on solving fundraising and marketing issues for charities, research foundations, and private schools. She just has an incredible, impressive track record of successfully strategizing the growth of new revenue um, in an organization by using emerging technology and enhanced planning tools. Um, Deep experience in board development, volunteer management, annual giving, integrated marketing, operations event management. Anya is an absolute powerhouse um, when it comes to not-for-profit space, business development. We are very, very lucky to have her on our podcast today. Anya, welcome and thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. I don't know quite, I think we should probably just close it at that because I mean, that's definitely going to be the high and I don't, I mean, that's a lot to live up to. Um, thanks very much Dave for that. I'm so excited to be joining you guys. Um, you you are my favorite humans and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to dive into it and, and have a good chat about nonprofits and some of the emerging technologies that they should be considering as they move forward. Awesome.
0: Um, you will, of course, know um, our partners in crime, Jeff and Mike, from our previous relationships. Um, bit of a bit of a tag team here, so we we've all got questions for you, and we all want to jump in on this discussion. But I know that they're equally excited to to jump into this chat with you as well.
2: Yeah, I'm uh, it, I'm really excited about this, Dave, Anya, Mike. Um, one thing I will ask, though, I think we should uh, be very um, serious about this so let's make sure we don't talk about hockey today because i don't <laughs> want to disrupt or hijack the talk to- the uh
1: the talk that we're about to have in the topic you so just, you, i knew you were going to bring it up somehow yes the sense lost yesterday i'm aware of it jeff thank you you don't you don't need to bring it up i got it
2: <laughs> anya welcome we're really excited to have you here and uh Um, Given all that's happening over the past year, um, this this is a like Dave said, a very timely discussion and and we're really excited to have you on here. Thank
3: you. Yes, likewise.
2: So
0: so we can sort of ease ourselves um, into this discussion and we do want to get to. you know, the meaty stuff, uh, Anya, things that we've talked about in the past um, mm-hmm. around donor acquisition, uh, around yeah. you know the not-for-profit space, and some of the challenges facing these organizations, especially over the past year with some of the limitations and the restrictions that have been imposed on how they would normally go about generating revenue and, um, mm-hmm. uh, and getting donations. But maybe just to get us started, and just for the benefit of those listening, if you could just Give us a little bit of background on how did you get into this (laughs) not-for-profit
2: space anyway?
1: How the hell did you wind up there? And why? and That's
3: the real question, why?
1: <laughs> okay, so obviously with profound intent, right? Because 1991, everybody was aspiring to a job in, in nonprofit. Um, no, to be very honest, I was on track to be a international lawyer. I was going to go to law school in Toronto. And um, the winter before my final year at Carleton, I had a rather massive ski accident over uh, at Lake Louise. I, I had an accident right at the very top of the mountain. The run was called Top of the World. And that sort of derailed finishing everything on time and, and you know, starting law school. Um, so I was a bit at odds. And then um, shortly thereafter, I managed to come down with the worst case of the measles that Canada has ever seen in 50 years and was quarantined uh, at Ottawa General. And I was so exhausted after that, I just thought I have to hit pause. And in hitting pause, um, I got to do things like go. My father lived in Kenya at the time so I was going to visit him and I thought I would stop in on my younger brother who was at the time a professional ballet dancer. I was waiting for him and uh, one of the dancers came out and said to somebody that doing new work for the company, hey blank, I won't mention his name, I'll see you on Monday and he said hey no you won't, I have quit. And with all the arrogance of a 21 year old I thought well I don't know what the guy does but I'm sure I can do it. So I called up the general manager and convinced him that he should consider me for the job, and and crazily enough, he did. And the first thing they asked me to do was to build a float um, to promote the holiday ballet that this company had and to um, somehow get it paid for. And i convinced Bell Canada that, yes, what they'd like to do is pay for the float. And so, um, thankfully, my GM a uh, very generous human, really just an extraordinary guy to work for, especially as a first professional job. He sent me off to the University of Waterloo for a, what they called at the time an income manager's program, and that is how I started a nonprofit.
0: So you, you offered yourself up for a job. You didn't even know what it was at the time. You got the job, still didn't yep. know what it was that you were supposed to do, and then you went out and you got Bell Canada to ante up some funds
1: uh, for the float. Yes. <laughs> I know, it's, it sounds crazy. When I tell people this story, they're like, yeah, sure, that's what happened. But it, it, it is what is exactly what happened. And then I went from there to an opera company, and then I moved to the US and you know, started a whole bunch. It, the US fundraising is very, very different than it was in Canada when I left at the time. Um, that first job, uh, my father was in the Canadian diplomatic corps, and he kept on asking me when I was going to get a real job, because as far as he was concerned, working for a nonprofit is something you did as a volunteer. This was not actually a profession. So
0: well, and that's an interesting stigma because
1: we we talked about that when we were you know
0: just doing some prep for this discussion. Um, and we talked about sometimes the the stigma or the persona of the not-for-profit space and sometimes how you know the the, the broader public perceives those individuals that have chosen to go into this space. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe give us a, a little bit of background on just like was that something that you saw right away when you got into the space and it yeah. Because I think I know you just a little bit. Is that something that drove you <laughs> probably deeper into this space than probably, you know, persuading yeah. you to get out?
1: Yeah, I um, I mean, that first job, I'm not going to lie. I was very young. Um, you know, I didn't have to worry about money too much. I remember buying my own computer, which was a 386, um, you know, so I have a computer at work. And I just loved being I mean, it was so much fun. It was more fun for me. I was getting to figure out how to do this. As I said, my GM at the time uh, was such an extraordinary mentor and amazing human and really just so encouraging. You know, this young 21 year old who was sort of mucking around. But also what was fantastic and I'm not going to lie to you, was I could go downstairs and watch rehearsal anytime that I wanted. And um, I've always loved ballet. And so that was that was an amazing experience. Um but from there, I think once I moved out of the arts and I loved working in the arts, that energy is, is something that you cannot experience anywhere unless you're working in with, for an arts organization. But my first job when I moved to the United States was for the largest free health clinic um, that exists in the U.S. As, as probably most of your listeners are all too aware, um, healthcare is not free down in the U.S. And this was the largest one. And it was in working for them, that I think it became far more of a calling for me, that I realized that my skill set and um, my passion and my desire to be a service could be met through working for nonprofits. And um, I was never, never going to be as rich as I would have been had I become a lawyer. But, you know, I would be comfortable and, and truly far more happy in being a service than if I followed a traditional path.
2: Well, and I think I think the industry is probably richer to have you in it and not on the legal <laughs> side, uh, as well. So uh, that's a great story, on it. it's, um, You know, I I particularly liked how you talked about kind of aligning your passion, mm-hmm. um, and the things that you like with your job. And, and I think that is um, something that you know I I'd a- maybe ask you like, do you, in in the people that you've crossed paths with is is this something that is normal for non like people who work at nonprofits. Are they is it typically filled with those who have a personal
1: <laughs> connection to the mission? Of, you know? I I'm I um I, I'm going to take your your um, leeway and just be very direct and frank as I was told yeah. I could be is um I would say yes to the detriment of the industry. Well, that's where I was going to go with it. it. (laughs) It (laughs) I think, you know, when you think about how many people get passionate about something and they figure that they are, oh, my gosh, they're going to fix this problem without, for one, seeing if the problem has already been fixed by someone or is already being worked on by someone. But also, you know, just because you really care about something doesn't mean that you're qualified to be an administrator, an executive, a marketing person, a program provider, or certainly a development person. Um, these are actually skills, and um, passion is not enough for, for you to be able to be successful.
2: And you could probably apply that to a podcast host, too. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I just highly, made a note of that, actually. Yeah. Highly
1: <laughs> I qualified. Say, particularly when you have an unruly guest. I mean, you know, that, that doesn't help at all. But that's a really good...
0: so. This is a really good point. Uh, sorry, Mike, but um, I think Anya, one of the you've you've led us there as we kind of expected you would. Um, one of the things that we want to try to do with this podcast um, is sort of leverage what we call the tenth voice, and you're familiar with this because we've we've spent time together and we've worked together. But um, that's a philosophy that we employ um, at TMD. It's something that we've worked with you on, where we're constantly trying to challenge what is. What is generally accepted or what the status quo is Um, and that's usually in the form of asking those hard questions or really trying to push against what feels comfortable and push against what um, generally people are willing to accept. Um, So that's something that we want to be able to bring into this so. Um, and I know you're comfortable with it, but just for the mm-hmm. sake of those that are listening, like that is something that we want to be able to do is make sure we're maybe turning over the rock on, on an uncomfortable conversation or one that maybe not everybody is, is fully on board with, but just so that we can have the conversation more openly. And I think it was, you know, what you said about sometimes passion's not enough. Um, there are some, uh, some skill sets and, and some uh, expertise that does lend itself to getting the job done. Uh, and I would argue like i would I would agree with you that um I think sometimes we we rely on that too much, mm-hmm. and sometimes in relying on that too much, it actually becomes something that clouds our ability to make very rational matter of fact decisions about what the best course of action is or how to go about something. and what I mean that is that sometimes with that passion, there is a sensitivity or a reserved. Persona that sort of creeps in there, where because we're in that space, we are maybe not as direct with asking, or not as direct with moving something forward as we should be. Would you agree with that?
1: One hundred percent. I think that it's it's one of the things that I think really holds this industry back. Um, I'd like to think that some, you know, for some of the bigger organizations that, uh, and and as the profession becomes, if you will very circular statement, but more professionalized, um, that there will be some improvement in that. But I think that one of the issues that, that um, I certainly come across is that somehow working for a nonprofit, you are less than, you know, like quite frankly, the number of times that people are surprised that I'm smart because they just assume that you went into nonprofit because you couldn't hack it in the for-profit world, right? Not that you were driven to go into it, but that you somehow weren't qualified to do the other. So there's that element. And then you you talk about the fact that there's this um, uh, a patina of good service, good works, that if you start to become strategic and targeted and aggressive in your donor acquisition and stewardship, that you have somehow lost the, that halo effect that um, people seem to think that nonprofits have. And yeah, so I, I, I agree completely with your statement.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of different types of nonprofits. I've worked with, with charities and, and higher educational institutes and have seen over the years a bit of a shift, at least in the way that certain tools and, and uh, methodologies Are are implemented. And there there does seem to be a bit of a shift there. But one of the things that I noticed, and and I'm just going to say this because this is what the the podcast is about, that at times in in some organizations, it seems the focus is more on um, the staff that are most committed to the mission versus necessarily the staff that are most qualified to do a specific role. And my question to you is because you've seen this for, for a number of years. Do you see that needle moving? Do you see any change happening in the way that uh, fundraising is done?
1: Um, in the place, like I said, I mean, if you're if you're looking at some of the billion-dollar charities that we have in the U.S., I can promise you that they are very specific and very focused at accessing any technology and any resource that they can in order to be efficiently amplifying their donor base. Um, they are few and far between, and I think that you get, and again, very frankly, when the nonprofit space, you get a lot of people who feel very deeply, like they have big feelings and they really are committed to being of service. And it's Mm -hmm. like, as I am, you know, it's part of who I see myself as, is that I'm of service, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're terribly strategic or analytical. And um, so I think that they don't, it's like, it has to be an emotion-based thing as opposed to a sequenced, um, well thought out, uh, using technology and then, you know, sort of working the steps in order to get there. And it's very funny because we have this thing in, in um, major gifts that we call moves management, which is a process by which we identify someone that we think has the capacity for a major gift. And we very deliberately put forth sort of 10 to 15 steps, like touch points that we're going to do with them before we would even consider asking them for a gift. So <laughs> we do that part. But then when it comes to acquiring donors or sharing our messages, you know, more broadly in order to expand our audience base. Well then no, we 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 shouldn't we shouldn't be we, we shouldn't apply forethought. We shouldn't use the resources that we have um, you know because that's somehow would, very frankly it's somehow dirty. You know, like you're right, not right. you're not pure anymore.
3: Right. Can you still have an authentic grassroots message while still employing modern tools and sales techniques?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. When I think of, um, you know, some of the places that I've worked is it's, it's it's a very, I mean, I've worked for some very fundamental missions. Um, you know, like I said, providing free health care for, for the indigent people who don't have health care, um, protecting the poor and vulnerable, making children, you know, have, have great mentors and a safe place to come after school. These are all incredibly fabulous missions. And they're, a lot of them are very grassroots. But if you don't employ modern techniques in terms of donor acquisition and marketing strategy and stewardship opportunities, you, you're you negating the, the power to do more good. If you have such a great thing that it's grassroots and it was a bunch of people that came together and started this and they cared so much about it and it's grown and grown and grown, it's your duty if you're sitting in the seat of uh, a development professional or marketing professional or marcom you know that gets broken all sorts of different ways it's your duty to then take what is out there now what is available now and continue to expand it using these techniques as the first people did when grassroots was the only choice <clears throat> so so why don't they <laughs> like I said, I think I think I think for a lot of people it's um a lack of well, for one, I'll tell you a lack of knowledge. I don't think I run into a lot of development professionals who simply don't know that there's these tools out there they yeah. might know they might know about Facebook and the fact that you can click off that you want to be talking to um, you know uh, a, a, a female of a certain age who probably has a, a student who's about to come into ninth grade who lives in this geographic area and enjoys cooking right like that's about as far as Facebook is going to get you but they think that that's that's the end game right like that's okay we can do that They don't understand like when i started working with you guys the tools that you brought to us through your partners and our ability to come up with the the true definition of the personas that were most likely to respond to us then to layer on top of that each persona will respond to a different message so you know don't feed up the same message to a gen x woman as you would a gen z male and being able to still be very clear about brand and campaign but to be able to tweak it in order for it to resonate the most with that audience That was something that even I think I'm pretty cognizant and on top of things. But it wasn't until I started working with TMD and the way that you brought those tools to us that I I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not gonna say that I was ahead of the curve. You guys brought me into this curve. But now having done it that way, I can't imagine ever going back to being so limited um, in terms of what I thought the potential was to be strategic in reaching out to for donor acquisition. Can can I throw something out here? I have a, I have a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a
2: philosophy or a, a thought or just a, you know, tenth voice around what I think is one of the biggest challenges. And, um, you know, and this is no disrespect to those who are marketers or business development or, or uh, fundraisers, development people at, um, at nonprofits. But nonprofits, I think they really need the best marketers and the best development people to get the money that's required to solve as Dave often refers to it I love the line the world's greatest problems mm-hmm. we're asking these nonprofits to do this but then what happens and I don't know if it's a stigma if it's a combination of politics and legalities and you know but they can't they're required to solve these problems that's what we're asking them to do but yeah. then we don't let them spend any money no. We don't let them. They're not allowed to hire the best people. They're mm-hmm. not allowed to spend any money on media. Like if if you're a for-profit business, you're allowed to go out and spend whatever you want as long as you sh- as long as you are um, accountable to generate the revenue to pay yeah. for it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if we could allow these nonprofits to change the model to be able to spend the money. Or acquire the audience. It doesn't always mean they have to spend money, but we can talk about that yeah. later. But the <laughs> the fact that they could go out and get people to donate, like a for profit gets people to buy things, then
1: we start to solve these problems, and the world yeah. becomes a better place. Yeah. So. Well, I, you know, my thing is like there's nothing wrong with saying that we're selling a service, right? Whether whether that service is healthcare childhood cancer research, education, uh, ballet, opera, it doesn't matter, we are selling a service, but there's this idea that we can't approach that the same way that somebody would be selling widgets. And I really respect the reason that we ended up with, with tools like GuideStar and Charity Navigator, they were there because there was abuse going on in terms of executive compensation and benefits. And there was no transparency, right? There was It was hard to access. An, um, in the U.S., we have to file something called a 990 that very clearly lays out our expenses, our executive compensation, so that there's transparency. But it's become this, you, you get held to a percentage. You have to spend X on your programs and why on everything else. And if you upset that balance, you lose your ranking. And Charity Navigators did a great job of making sure that people see them as a resource to go and check out if this is an okay charity. But honestly, the number of times that I have had that be punitive to me, I need to spend money in order to make more money to expand my program. So one year my ratio might look really crazy but the next year, you're going to see that that benefit. And it's this very short-term view that nonprofits are held to. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the same as corporations are. Yes, they're accountable on the annual basis to either their owners, their shareholders, whatever, but people understand their trajectories. And also for-profit corporations are far more, they get far more leniency when it comes to things like a pandemic, right? Like nobody expects uh, American Airlines to be turning a massive profit this year. But, you know, in the nonprofit world, we still need to provide the services that we promised that we would, you know, and that's, that's, it's, it, there's a lot of challenges when it comes to it. But I in short, I agree with you that until we get in the nonprofit world an understanding that it is not evil to be spending money on donor acquisition, market share growth, audience development, whatever you want to call it, this is this is not a bad thing. This is a thing that ultimately will allow the nonprofit to be more successful and to provide more service.
0: We've talked about this before and like I'm I'm listening to the explanation, and I'm getting a little pissed off because it, <laughs> it kind of b- burns my ass a little bit that it's it is ass backwards. Mm-hmm. So you know Jeff is quite right. And we've talked about this, which is why we came together in the first place, Anya, because we had such an affinity with what it was you were trying to do um, with the organization you were with. And like that mission resonated with us in such a genuine personal way. Um, where we were now compelled to bring every ounce of expertise, insight, perspective, every ounce of you know resource capacity that we could, because we felt not only um, were we going to sleep better at night because it it was actually the right thing to do, uh, but because we were in a position to do that. I don't understand for one second why the rules are different for for profit um, as they are for not for profit. If anything. They should fucking be reversed. Like, yeah. how is it? How is it that not-for-profit organizations can bleed out the back end of their PL, they can lose money quarter over quarter. Um, they're actually not many of them contributing anything positive to society. And other than like putting people into debt or giving them more material things that they can latch on to, they're not solving a real problem. They're not actually providing care or to your, and I love the way you said this, and I know this is true about you, being of service, like they're not actually helping create a better society or a better series of communities or addressing some of these. Honestly, let's face it, people die every year because we have not been able to find cures or we have not been able to fund enough research to put treatments in place that, and regardless of what the the cause or what uh, what the charity is, I don't understand and maybe you can tell me why the hell hasn't someone stepped up and said hang on a second this is absolute bullshit these not for profits with like with you know all the right expertise and the planning because you're right we have met um, we have met folks like you in a not for profit role which were pleasantly surprised and we went holy shit Anya has your shit together we are going to be able to head down a path and we're going to be able to do something here why hasn't somebody stepped up and said this is wrong we are not moving these things forward the way we could.
1: Well, I'll tell you, the the CEO, former CEO of the AIDS ride, um, he is a huge proponent of this. Like he is so fed up with the assumption that um, if you're the CEO of a $50 million nonprofit, that it would be outrageous for you to be paid anywhere close to what a CEO of a $50, $50 million for profit was getting paid. And so there, there are there is more noise being made about it. Um, I've seen less you know, grumbling about executive salaries. I mean, why wouldn't you want the the former CEO of Coca-Cola to be running the American Cancer Society or something, right? Like, why wouldn't you want somebody with that expertise? But you're gonna have to pay for them. It can't always be, well, but this is a good cause, bleeding heart, you know, like, you should do it because I'm a, I'm a good, I'm trying to do good in the world. Um, I will tell you one thing that's really interesting in the US um, versus Canada. And I'll give you a quick, very quick analogy. So, as you know, my first job was with with a ballet company. And I uh, attended several conferences when I was there that were actually in the US. And we had a fascinating discussion. There's a bunch of Canadians and a bunch of Americans. We're all for sort of small ballet companies. And we had this conversation that if you look before the creation of the Canada Council, that um, private funding of ballet companies, arts companies, in the U.S. and Canada, were very similar. And then, when the Canada Council was formed, which was a great thing to do, it, the attitude was like, "Oh, well, the government's taking care of that." So it, it's I am, I'm, it's a luxury if I can donate it because somebody's already taking care of it. Whereas in the U.S., you know, donations to the arts, particularly in the big cities, continue to go up, and you have like you know, San Francisco Ballet and New York City Ballet that are extremely well funded. In the US, we don't have that social safety net, um, the way that we do in, in Canada. But it's that still thing, like there's this idea that the somebody else should be taking care of that. Like homelessness is a government problem, right? As opposed to, it is just a problem, and you should donate to it. And it's like, almost like um, rich people are able to donate to charities, you know, the average person isn't. And so it leads to this dichotomy where you don't it's it's not seen as fun like they, everybody knows we need it but it's not as fundamental as buying a new winter coat and so that all the r&d that goes into a winter coat and the marketing that is seen as justified it's not it's not seen that way in the nonprofit world
0: it's a real perversion of values isn't it like because mm-hmm. um you're absolutely right we we may have actually created an environment where philanthropy but even because philanthropy and 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 fundraising and donations, these are different beasts, I think, to some yep. degree. And I think, I yep. think maybe as a as a general consumer or as a general member of a community, we get these things confused. And I think you're right. We've created this situation where most people, regular people, those of us that are on this call and those of us that you know that we we know and work with, like regular that's not for regular people. That's for the rich, that's for yep. the well off, that's for those with means to actually you know, go to their big gallop balls and write big fat checks and all the rest of that stuff. Mm -hmm. We're kind of leaving it up to them. And listen, don't get me wrong. There are great, you know, many great examples of people with means who are Mm -hmm. contributing significantly, but it hasn't become, these are commonly charities or or causes that permeate every aspect of the community, right? So you take something like childhood cancer. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine there's anyone on the planet who hasn't been affected by this in some way. So the applicability of this mission is global, far-reaching everybody. You can't swing a cat and not hit somebody yeah. that has been, in, in in probably a reasonably direct way, affected by this. Yet, we still have to do all this work to convince people that this is something they need to weigh in on. Mm-hmm. This is something that they actually have an obligation to try to help resolve. Yet, we've created the situation where they feel, most of us feel like, oh, no, someone else is taking care of that. That's somebody, either government somebody else will take or care or that's care that. rich.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Somebody, somebody who's,
2: who's rich. rich someone yep. who's a corporation, but I also, you know, I, I, I gotta be honest with, and we do a lot of work as you know, Anya in this space and with mm-hmm. a number of different nonprofits, U S Canada and, and abroad. But the other part of that is we often hear, ah, you know, I'm not really worried about those people. Mm-hmm. I, I really just want the big gifts. Yeah. Just want the big number. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dave said something I think is really important. Like in the for-profit industry, you have different target consumer groups. Why? And, and I'm not saying that they don't look at this, but the focus of the attention is all on the top of the yeah. peak for
1: the wealthy people who are, mm-hmm. who are philanthropists, which is different than donors. And but here's the thing, Jeff. Right? If the 80/20 rule, which applies in so many industries, certainly applies in nonprofit. But my my thing has always been you need to be developing that 20 in order to be refreshing the 80, right? Like you can't, right. you know, it, it's it's 20% of the people are giving 80% of the money. But if we don't really like play in that space of the 80% of the people who are only giving 20% of the money, when the 20% dies out, we're going to be in real trouble. And you right. don't know without good donor stewardship, without good prospecting, without good acquisition, you don't know who's in that 80% that you need to develop. And it's just not like not using those tools is crazy. But I was gonna one of the things I think that, that Dave you brought up that that made me think of this is that in my previous life, when I was looking to partner with a marketing firm, like say, say when I was at the opera, um, when I worked for the opera company, I now, when I look at it, I would give myself grace because I was, you know, quite young, but I look at it and I thought, well, I'll figure out who all the other opera companies are using and I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll hire them for our subscription campaign. And I think a lot of nonprofits do that same thing, right? They look for who is already in. In the space, who who are the big guys using? And I think one of the things, I mean, when you came to us, right? I mean, you had so much experience, you'd done the work with the hospitals and stuff, but we we were a bit of a different beast in terms of being a national nonprofit or well, an inter- international nonprofit. And honestly, like it was it was for me, I was got so excited because you were going to bring a way of thinking about the work in this nonprofit. Without, without it being uncomfortable or unsettling, because it was so clear that you were attached to the mission, like it was visceral for all of you. So it wasn't just that you were trying to increase our earnings. It's like It was so clear that you guys were focused on the end goal. You wanted to increase our earnings in order for us to have more money to solve this problem. And I think that, you know, one thing that I would say, if there's, you know, any of my fellow development marketing people and nonprofits are listening, is don't be afraid to go outside the box when you're thinking about who to partner with. Um, get over the first hurdle of finding somebody to support you in actually hiring an outside expert. Once you get out of that hurdle or over that hurdle, you know, don't, don't confine yourself to who's already in the space because you, you will miss a gem for sure. That's yeah. That's a, Sorry, go ahead. Go right. ahead, Jeff.
3: I was just going to say that's a, that's a great point, and I, I think we've seen that a lot in the past. But you know, to take that to, to push back a little bit on that, uh, you know, don't be afraid to essentially be an innovator in your space. How do we? How do we empower the folks? Mm -hmm. that are maybe stuck in this little box that that don't feel that they're empowered enough to push back on the board of directors or push back on the folks that say no this is how we've always done things how do they get that sense of empowerment to do that innovation
2: Uh, it's they call anya they just
1: (laughs) call anya Uh, or just hire anya (laughs) anya's busy right now um no i it it is it is really challenging because I got to tell you, uh, this is this is another thing that it, it, it sort of plays on what you were just saying, Mike. Is that rarely will a nonprofit board commit the length of time that it takes to get something going. They, um, you know, they they need they need immediate cash. These are these are real needs. They need the cash, and so letting a campaign play up especially when you haven't been talking to your people this way. Um, You know, I'm dealing with this now, as as I think we mentioned, I work for a, a private school now in Los Angeles. And we have been, we're actually celebrating our 65th anniversary. So you can imagine we have a lot of alumni that we could reach out to, but they haven't been for in any, in any sort of targeted concrete way. And, so we have to basically start from scratch. And I said to, to this extraordinary employee that I have who who runs the, the alumni portion, I said, don't worry. I don't expect you to fix this in 12 months. If you haven't fixed it in four years, then we're gonna have a conversation. Because what I said to her is from the first day that that freshman sets foot on campus, I want you to be part of their experience. So that it is a natural progression when once they become an alumni or alumnus. And no more to that, Every major peak that someone has in their alumni life, you know, they're graduating college, they're looking for their first job, they're having their first children. We need to be of service to them at some point. So I need you, but I'm giving you the time. I'm like, you don't have to rush. And I think, Mike, that's the issue, is that that boards are, they have the fiduciary responsibility. They don't want to have to minimize the, the programs that they're offering. And so they expect immediate turnaround. So, But to answer your question, how do you convince them you go in with data. Most board members are, you know, seriously high-powered people at for-profit companies. They understand balance sheets, they understand KPIs, they understand target projections. Just make sure that you, you know, that you go in with the facts. Work with the company that you're, you know, thinking of engaging with. Work with the team around you. Find experts on the board who will help, who will help solve that problem for you, and they'll go be your champion. It is so worth it, and I know that it's uncomfortable, but it is. Absolutely fundamental. I think, especially as consumers start to expect more targeted communications, they don't. I, we, this is a silly analogy because we all use it, but don't they don't? If you send them an ad for dog food and they have six cats, you are never going to get their business because you've immediately said, "I don't know who you are. I don't respect you enough to find out." And so that's it. You're done. And nonprofits have to take that mentality on.
3: Yeah, and the approach sometimes is just to send twice as many messages. Then <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. about dog food, yes, yeah. about dog food. As much dog food. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> what at some, some point, those cats will eat the dog food if I keep sending it. <laughs> or you're going to get a dog, one or the other. Um, you know, I. <laughs> so here's the thing: what um, what Anya, you just described about the requirement of coming prepared and having that data and being more strategic. I got to be honest. it Usually, doesn't come with a lower cost. Mm-hmm. That doesn't usually mean I have to find the cheapest partner out there. Yeah, I have, you know, um, and that in itself is part of the problem. Like, what is, is there an opportunity? And I, honestly, I don't know. Is there an opportunity at some point for the nonprofit space to look at performance-based yeah. type marketing yeah. arrangements yeah. partnerships so that, that you know. I literally Look, wrote that down, like, Jeff. Really? When did <laughs> you learn to write? So, right? I mean, you, <laughs> yeah, you're on the keyboard. You this wrote this it down
3: in on. <laughs> it's a series of symbols that but I've it, written. It, but... is
1: it in cursive? That's the
3: question. <laughs> it um, is actually cursive. It's, it's
1: an HTML. It. You wrote it in code. They don't <laughs> teach cursive down here anymore. Anyway, that's a that's a whole other story. But Jeff, what I was going to say to you is, um, if if you are given the opportunity to hire an outside firm to help you with with donor acquisition, marketing stewardship. You've got to find the person who's going to do it best for you, not the cheapest. Because if you go with the cheapest, and, you know, maybe a cheap person has some really good ideas, but are they going to be able to execute? Do they have the partnerships in order to actually make this come to fruition? Because if you spend, you know, okay, say, say you've got a $20,000 budget, and they're like, we'll give you $20,000 for your marketing budget, right? And you're like, oh, my gosh, all right. So I've got 14 campaigns in... 12 months, uh, $20,000. Okay. I'll go with this firm that says they can support all of those things. Right. Great. I can promise you the work is not going to be great. And you are, you are then going to be justifying to your board why you spent $20,000 and that there was no uplift. You know, there was no, no increase in amplification in your donations. If I was said, if someone said to me, all right, I'll give you, you can only have $20,000. I would go and find the one of my campaigns that I thought had the opportunity for the most amplification, which is the campaign that if we really focused on it, I could get at least the twenty, you know, hopefully the twenty to a factor of two or three. That I could see that growth if I just focused on that one campaign. And I would go find the best person for that campaign, you know, who who is really great in this space, and whether that's low end donors or you know some sort of very fancy capital campaign or some sort of event. Um, I'd go find that person, I'd spend my entire $20,000 on that one campaign. So question for you on boards,
0: because my ass is still a little hot over this. Um, (laughs) So if if we have these uh, high profile board members who work for for for-profit organizations, who are used to data, who are used to looking at results, performance-based compensation, holding people accountable against a certain series of targets and KPIs, how is it then that we still see the same situation replicating itself over and over. Where on you, you know, like you just described, you have somebody who's been given let's face it, a piss poor budget that has no freaking chance of actually solving the problem or at the very least like you said, unless unless someone is especially bright to sort of say, okay, I can't do everything with 20 grand like you've asked me to. I'm actually going to try to focus out on the one thing that I think I can show some progress, use that as a mechanism to maybe say, see, if you give me this, I can give you this. So if you give me more of this, I will give you more of that. How is it that there's still that gap with those boards? If these boards are, are sitting there yeah. and, uh, and they're supposed to be, yes, they're supposed to be finding, providing governance and, and all of those other, and th- those are very important um, aspects of, of running uh, any organization, but not-for-profits for sure. How is it that that experience? Yeah. Is it helping leadership at a, at, a, at a not-for-profit say, you know what, um, I think we actually need to level up here a little bit more. How is it that the boards are not helping change this dynamic? Because the dynamic isn't changing. Yeah. It is in little pockets. But overall, we're seeing the same sequence of events repeat themselves over and over again. We're seeing um, not-for-profits, staff, leadership, Uh, These missions are suffering because they're not properly funded in a way that they can actually demonstrate. And by by results, I don't mean we sold more coats this past quarter. Mm -hmm. By results, I mean we saved more lives this past quarter or this past year. Or we're this much closer to a cure or to a treatment that's actually going to have an impact in a very tangible way because someone's actually going to be around a lot longer or they're going to live um, to their full potential. How is it there's still a gap there between boards (laughs) and what they're supposed to be doing?
1: All right, so we're going to start the next hour of the show. Okay, Okay, so if you need to hit the
0: washroom or refresh your beverage, now is the time
2: to
1: do it.
0: Now that's why I bought multiple uh, beverages. Jeff showed up with a six-pack. He knew this was going to go deep. So
1: Hey, at least it's not a twofer, so we know that he'll be able to stay with us. Um, okay, so uh, there's a whole lot to unpack there. So let me, let me try and go through it a little sequentially. Um, one boards do have fiduciary responsibility, and so they they are they are not able to put the company at risk when it comes to being able to cover our expenses, our committed expenses. So there there is always that that's driving them right because you know with very few exceptions, these guys don't actually own the companies that they're working for. So immediately they're they're literally on the hook if if something goes massively awry um two these board members for the most part there you always get a few board members that are there because their corporation told them they have to go sit on a board and they had a friend who was on that one or you know they like the the prestige of being on that board but for the most part board members really care about mission and there is that still that divide between um funding the mission and putting money in the admin side in order to be able to fund it more. And I think what it comes down to, Dave, is that the people who are going into those board meetings who work for the nonprofits, they don't go in, they, they, for however they're presenting it, they don't they don't go unprepared or they're not persuasive because if if the board member trusted what they were saying in terms of if we invest this, this will be the result over X period of time, I don't, I mean, board members would get it, right? Like he, the, he or she would be like, okay, all right, this is a little risky, but I feel comfortable that you've done the work and we are going to sign off on this. And I think one of the other challenges, and this comes to the 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 last point that you made, is how are nonprofits measuring results, right? Is it, I used to, when I worked for for a mentoring organization for youth, I always used to talk to, when I would go meet with a donor, yes, we, we've served X number of children this year. You know, we have, we have this many and this many graduated and there are this many of them are the first in their family to graduate. But what was more interesting and far more tangible to people when I was talking to them about it is, yes, this child is the first in their family to graduate and is going to college. And that's amazing for her. It's amazing for her family. But you have just changed the trajectory of every generation that's going to come from the life of this child and there's the impact right like when you were just saying how many kids have we saved you have to be comfortable to spend the money to figure that out and so many people you know they'll say oh no we couldn't possibly you can't i couldn't possibly figure out the fourth generation of a child who was who was mentored through this program and was the first to go to college. I, I would have to invest in order to figure out what, if, if my hypothesis is correct. So you got to be willing to invest in that. But you also have to be willing to stake your ground. You have to be confident in what you're doing. If you only look at that first step, like if, at the school that I'm at now, if I only looked at how many kids graduating from 12th grade were getting into a college and what sort of college were they getting into? Well, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a metric that a lot of parents care about. But I don't think that's what we're as a, as an institution. I don't think we're not we're not just trying to you know crank out the sausages and make sure that they all go on to the you know the next place. We want to create humans who know how to be of service. It's one of our fundamental principles. Is that this that this school was actually founded by a nun who who um, came from Montreal, and uh, you know that their commitment was to serve the poor and vulnerable. And so we make sure that when these kids graduate, that yes, they're ready for college but that they understand that it is their duty to be of service and to look for those opportunities to be of service. And so in that, I can have a very interesting discussion with somebody about who our graduates are 10 years, 20, 30 years out and what have they done to be of service? What have they accomplished? Like right now I'm working on um, a whole thing with our alumni about what they're doing to respond to the pandemic because we have so many kids who went to school here who are now on the front lines of this. And that is going to be a fascinating story for me to tell. Um, but you have like, you have to look down the horizon. That's where your value is. That's the value, not the fact that you had X number of children graduate or you serve this many littles in, in the program or that this many kids attended the club. That's not it. It's the bigger picture. And I, until people start going into their boards and being able to tell that story, get them really emotionally attached to it, and then say, and here's how we're going to do it, here's how we're going to measure it. I, if you did it that way, who wouldn't sign off on it? But it, it means money, and, and money has to be committed. Well, here, I think, you know,
2: I think you maybe really hit on something on you is that the difference between the nonprofit and the for-profit is, the. and you keep using, I don't know why you guys keep using jackets and outerwear as examples, but um, <laughs> the the reality is, Products like that are essentially commodities and it's transactional. And it's just one season after the other. You keep doing, you hope to get a little bit more. But the opportunity to make a difference with nonprofits is a lifetime. Like it is more than material, as in a product, it's in you're changing the course and direction of people. And, you know, frankly, you know, Uh, I'm not I'm going to kind of steal this line, but I'm not really willing to accept that corporate America or corporate North America or global or whatever doesn't have the resources to solve those problems.
0: But I like where you're I like, sorry to interrupt, but I like where you're going there because you're kind of changing the math around lifetime value. Right. So we talk about in the for profit space, lifetime value of a customer. And usually what that is, is it's it's usually in an 18-month or a 36-month window, right? We're usually talking about what is our opportunity to either sell more or introduce other stuff to a customer within a certain window. But there's usually a little bit of a, like, it's more of a finite window. But Anya, what I liked about what you were just saying, what Jeff was building on is, like, you're almost talking about a more forward looking view of return on investment in the not for profit space because now that creates challenges of its own, right? So if you actually start to say actually no, it's not just how many kids or how many treatments we were able to fund last year. It actually has to do with the value that we can deliver to the community for the next 20 years or the next 30 years if that individual lives. Mm-hmm. how do you possibly forecast that kind of return on investment because in many ways that's what you're doing you're actually you're prolonging the contributions to society at a larger scale by actually being able to fund these cures or these programs or or whatever else how the hell do you wrap your head around that
1: I don't know let's, let's bring the computer science guy in because I'm going to bet that he can write an algorithm for us that'll figure this out <laughs> that's, that's already got well, I was going
3: gonna... <laughs> so. say I mean that 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 is where the challenge is how do you measure it and how do you satisfy the audit part of of where nonprofits are the the accountability with you know something that ultimately is going to be pretty hard to measure so but especially
1: right but mike i'm going to take umbrage right because if you have a solid communications partner and if you are committed that you don't that it's not a transactional thing that if that child, if that human, if it's an adult thing, if they were touched by your work, they benefited from your program, You, it's not a transaction, right? Like when I worked for the free health clinic, you know, I remember this one day we had a guy coming in who literally had a knife hanging out of his arm it was stuck in there. And I was like, wow, okay. But if we had stayed in contact with that guy, you know, what what would we have learned about the difference that that treatment made for him? And maybe maybe it wasn't anything. but. It was yes. He was going to come in and have the knife taken out. But if we had a great communications partner at the time and really excellent data management, we could have stayed in. We could have stayed relevant to that person. We could have probably done more for them. And like what I was talking about, our alumni thing is from the moment that they're freshmen, they are alumni. And how are we going to be continue to be of service until they have a teenager that they want to send to high school, right? And of course, they're going to immediately think, well, we've got to go there. Um, I, I think you can do it. Yes, is the data is the data absolutely unwieldy um, depending on the size of your organization sure I mean, you're not going to be able to follow anybody everybody but there is no excuse for following nobody Ooh. yeah and i th- i think
2: the the i like i like to let that sink yeah. in for a <laughs> second yeah. that, everybody let that, that, that one sink in it. it's a good time to have a, a sip if you're, if you're into that have <laughs> a uh-huh. long enough <laughs> but i think you know two things uh, first is for profit brands would love to have the emotional Connection that the nonprofits have, and I think nonprofits have something there that is a competitive advantage. And let's be honest, and this is a sometimes an elephant in the room, they're all competing for the same dollars, especially for the non philanthropy donations. You know, Mm -hmm. for the the typical donor, you know, they're using their disposable income to either buy something, or give it away, or invest it in themselves. That's really um, the other thing is, Mike. Just to go back to something you said is. I actually think that we can measure and track and steward this donor for the lifetime value. And and I'm not sure if you maybe said, like, how do we do that? But like, I think part of it is we just have to make sure the nonprofits are allowed to invest in the tools and the strategy to do it.
3: Yeah. And I think you can measure the individual impact. And if you look at what we're seeing in the higher education space. I mean, they're doing fantastic things right now at understanding the student journey from the moment um, they start researching your school while they're in high school, all the way through past. I mean, not to be crude, but in, until they're in the grade. I mean, they, yeah. they have a, a line of sight on you perfectly. It's not so much the ability to measure it is how do you create a consistent framework that all nonprofits can measure up against and get a grade that is equal across each mm-hmm. of the different segments that they service. And that I think is where the challenge would be in that kind of lifetime measurement piece.
1: Well, as a sidekick, you, have- you could start something, you know, to, to compete with Charity Navigator that was less about what your numbers showed in terms of your finances and more about what you actually were accomplishing. That You can get right on that. That'd be a huge service to all of us. <laughs>
3: so, so I've got a, I've got a question or maybe I'm, <laughs> As Dave takes a breath in to say something, I jump right in there. But, um, you know, we talked about performance based compensation in mm-hmm. an agency or, or a communications company or PR that you might work with. Do you think there's a, a possibility for performance based compensation within the nonprofit executive teams themselves? And, and
1: how? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, the you, you've, you um, boy, you guys are really good at just jumping into the problematic topics in the nonprofit space. <laughs> so um, there is pretty much a, well, it's a written rule and a rule that we all abide by that if you work in development in nonprofit, that you will not do performance-based compensation, um, specifically tied to uh, KPIs, right? So you can't say, if I if I bring you uh, two $10 million Donors that I'm going to get 20% of that because I brought you two $10 million donors. Um, it's, it's considered that you might use some techniques and tactics that uh, would not serve the mission or the reputation of the nonprofit um, because you might be motivated more by your desire to buy a new car. Um, that having been said, I ha- was employed someplace that what they did is they scaled, um, they took my overall KPIs for the year and there was a, a sort of a bronze silver gold levels and if depending on which ones I hit but they were sort of bigger metrics not specific to securing a gift um, you know I got a bonus based on what percentage I'd achieved of, of each thing so the, you know so there are some people trying to get around it but it is it is a massive topic of conversation if we were allowed um, or if it wasn't there wasn't such a stigma about paying people by performance we'd be able to have a lot more people working in nonprofit because you know we wouldn't be carrying the full load and you know they'd have to sort of prove themselves in order to to be compensated but it is a very sticky wicket
0: so why is it so why is it okay on the on the corporate side so where's where's the stigma coming from because it's perfectly acceptable on the for profit side to compensate someone based on their performance right and i mean the golden rule is um, people will behave the way they're incented, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're encouraging someone to sell or you're encouraging someone to get donations, does, does it make sense? And are we seeing, are we seeing the results when people are properly compensated for the effort that you're asking of them? Yes. Now I totally get that. We need to be very careful about how they go about that. And there, there are you know similar, similar concerns, probably like off the chart concerns on the, on the for profit side for sometimes how that happens but if that is so widely accepted on one side of the paradigm where is the stigma coming from and why is
1: it not accepted in the not for profit space but but i would challenge you on that davis and be challenging everybody right now as we get into the second half here is that um, how many times have you gone into a store and you know you're, there's some high pressure techniques or you know just i'll say car salesman and you you are, are you working on commission like you know because and you immediately distrust their motives in trying to say, "Oh my God, that looks so fabulous on you," or "That shade of lipstick is perfect," or "No, what you really want is this car." You know, you, with you, oh, you don't want the base model; you want all this. um You know, I mean, I used to do this when I worked for Cineplex Odeon. I had to convince people what they really wanted was a large popcorn. They didn't want the medium popcorn. Um, now I didn't. You were either. right, by the way. <laughs> well, hello, and butter. <laughs> oh, five cents more, and you get twice as much popcorn. Yeah, that's me at sixteen. Um, so. I, I, I think that even in the for-profit world, now, if you're talking about executive compensation and the fact that the head of GM, if he has a good year, gets, you know, it's in his contract that he gets a million yeah. dollar bonus or x number of shares, yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think that is going to have to change. But when it comes to the person who's actually doing the transaction, like a major gift officer going into somebody who's getting a very palsy salary and uh, but all their compensation is basically based on commissions you are you're going to wonder right like i mean we do well, it we do it in for profit
3: yeah i mean the way you demystify wonder is is by having checks and balances and audits and, and ways to prove that there's no reason to wonder and yeah. and maybe it's not a commission based on on folks that are are trying to get um gifts or major gifts but yeah. you know it it does seem odd that you've got this incredible mission put ahead of you with all these restrictions put on you and no incentive really, to move the needle other than your your good heart and your goodwill.
0: Yeah, if you- and, we've, and we've used the we've used the stereotypical examples of the commission based model, mm-hmm. right? So we've called out the car salesperson, we've mm-hmm. called out you know the high pressure <laughs> retail. Um, and you know i I think the shade of lipstick I have on now is quite fetching, <laughs> but um, we've called out the stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. but i I do think that there is there are the how we do it is very, very important. And and regardless of whether or not that individual is commissioned or being comped on how they do it, how they do it still plays into the success that they're going to have with that particular individual, whether it's a consumer, whether it's a donor, um, whether it's a volunteer, frankly. Um, so how they do it, I think, still has a lot to, to play. And like, listen, nobody's excited about the CEO of GM making a ridiculous amount of money when when other people aren't. Uh, we've seen all kinds of Fortune 100 organizations, uh, leadership and owners profit ridiculously through this pandemic, for example. Um, the average consumer is not excited about that. Do we really give a shit? Uh, no. You know, I, not much I can do, but I don't really give a Are shit about that. Are you going to
1: stop buying from Amazon? Are you, because, no. you know, no, you're not. You're going to keep on buying from Amazon. Well, how the hell else am I supposed to get my shit, right?
0: I can't go anywhere. So, like, I I don't really have a choice. But I'm, I'm just saying that I think the how, absolutely, you raise a really good point that you don't want to discredit the ask or you don't want to discredit the mission in any way by putting the ask in a position where it's being questioned or you know the the credibility and the integrity of it's being called into question um but i still think that there's got to be and it's the broader conversation is stigma and we've talked about a few of them and and those limitations i think are something we need to find a way through honestly because um there's a side of you know of uh, certainly of our profession but there's this there's this side of, of society, the not-for-profit side, that is genuinely struggling to not only achieve their organizational objectives, but is generally struggling with this persona that we've kind of created that almost makes it impossible for them to rise up above it and then do the job that they need to do on a fair playing field. That's really all we're talking
3: about. Do you, do you think it's the, the tax status that is the reason everybody gives a shit?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know... It- it's, I mean, and I'll tell you quite frankly that I mean Canada and the U.S. have very different tax laws when it comes to to nonprofits. Um, I'm talking on the donor side, not not uh, not not well, yes, is yes on both sides, but specifically on the donor side. Um, you know, you get you you reduce your taxable income, not your taxes, and uh, really in America, the advantage if you want to give for the biggest bang of the buck is to do it, you know, as, as you're on your way off the planet, because right. you can, you can protect your estate here in a way that, that is um, unlike, unlike anything else. So, yeah, but for the most part, might answer your question. It's, it's very few people who are giving tens of millions of dollars that are really having a massive impact um, on their, I think most people, I think the average, you know, American gives somewhere between 1600 and $2,000 a year or something. Um, you know, I don't think so. I, I I, mean, I get it. And yeah, but no, what
3: I was what I was driving at, though, oh, we are talking about, you know, nobody seems to give a shit if the if the president of GM gets this massive bonus. But if we were to do the same type yeah. of model in the nonprofit space, everybody would care. Yeah. Do you think yeah. it's only because nonprofits have a different tax status than
1: no, I think I think, I think I think I think I think it goes back to you know what we were talking about before is it's it's not really seen as a profession and so you don't deserve to get paid that much because what you're doing is easy um, and I'll digress for one second to give you an example. So I I remember this very well. I had a, a board member. It was at, worked for a massive accounting firm, and
0: very very
1: good at his job. Um, but he would like to tell me how I should re- be running the gala and how I should be doing solicitations because, you know, he, he's been to galas and he knows. And I'm like, great. So, you know what? I filed my own taxes a couple of times now. So I'm going to come down to your accounting office and I'm just going to do what you do because, right, I mean, that must be the same thing. And it's 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 so absurd to put it that way. But that is honestly how people see it. Like I I couldn't possibly know my job well because I work for a nonprofit. So I must need people to advise me. And hopefully, especially in the US, I do see that changing. I haven't lived in Canada since 96, so I don't know what the current climate up there is. But when I left, it was very much the assumption that you couldn't hack it in the real world, and that's why you went into nonprofit.
0: Hey, everybody, this is the end of part one of this two-part series with Anya Klock. We got into some great discussion in the first episode went a little bit long we want to make sure that we're making uh, we're not making you sit too long to get to the good stuff so we wanted to break it up. join us next week when we um, introduce you to part two of this fascinating discussion with Anya clock. Stay tuned.